Would you go to the Lord in prayer with me this morning? Father, even as time moves forward and the world changes, some would say even progresses, so much remains the same. We look around and we see the masses, we see the powerful, the elite, stubbornly opposing you and the gospel. Today we remind ourselves that life is precious and sacred. Yet for half a century, our nation has legalized and attempted to normalize murder of the unborn. Oh, that you might break our hearts over this terrible injustice. Lord, may you move mountains, eviscerate self-serving interests, bring genuine repentance for this horrible, egregious sin. Change our course. Make us passionately committed to revere, to preserve, to nurture life. Lord, close the mouths of those who argue for this diabolical position and support this industry based on selfishness, convenience, politics, and profit. Lord, reveal Yourself to those who may be considering abortion today even as a viable option. Give assurance that the future is not hopeless. Supply the courage and desire to choose life. Lord, I'm reminded today of how the early church prayed powerfully and honestly and effectively in the face of cultural opposition, pressures, persecution. And I would ask, Lord, that you hear our prayer with them today amid our own challenges. Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. For truly in Jerusalem were gathered together against your servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Psalm 14. It was April 1966 when Time magazine set off a firestorm in our culture by publishing a cover story asking the question, Is God dead? At that time, 97%, 97% of Americans believed 
in God. That number has been in decline ever since. A 2016 Pew study, 50 years after the publishing of that article, said that 63% of Americans believed in God with absolute certainty. 63%. Arizona Christian University did a study last year, 2021, and discovered that belief in God has declined between generations. Here's what they discovered. 83% of those born between 1927 and 1945 profess belief in God. 79% of baby boomers born between 1946 and 1964 believe in God. 70% of Gen Xers born between 1965 and 1983 believe in God. 43% of millennials born between 1984 and 2002 said they don't know, care, or believe that God exists. 57% identified as Christians. Increasingly, we are living in a world that is intent on dismissing God. James Brown recorded a song a few years ago claiming that it's a man's world. David, writing this psalm, writes a different song claiming it's a fool's world. I want you to see how he tells us, makes his case this morning. He tells us bluntly, first of all, humanity prefers godliness, godlessness. Humanity prefers godlessness. The fool has said in his heart, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. This word fool, Nabal, is an interesting, intriguing study. It's not talking about intelligence. It's talking about character and morality. It has a perverse vibe to it. It's speaking of one who has a senseless regard for moral perception. Atheism manifests its presence in many different forms. The organization American Atheists defines atheism this way, and I quote, a lack of belief in gods. It's very passive. It's a very benign definition. High-profile atheists broadly campaign against God's existence, and yet there are many others of us who profess a belief in God or that God exists, and yet live practically as atheists. In 1 Samuel 25, there's a man there named Nabal. I'll let you do the math and figure that out. David's writing about fools, Nabals, and here's a man in 1 Samuel 25 whose name is Nabal. The Scripture tells us that he was successful, he was prosperous, but that he was harsh and badly behaved. David sent his men, sent some of his men to Nabal to request from him, to get from him some 
some sheep, some livestock, so they could engage in a feast, a feast day, a time of worship, of celebrating God. His men and he had provided protection for Nabal's shepherds. And David himself said that while they were doing that, that Nabal lost not one single sheep. Not one. So you would think that he would be greatly indebted to David and his men, right? Well, when the request was presented to Nabal, this is how he responded. He said, Who is David? And what do I owe him? Nabal's wife was named Abigail. She was a beautiful and spiritually astute woman. And she was privy to what was going on. And she went to David on her own and tried to make amends to seek forgiveness. She took the blame, actually, for what was taking place. But it's very interesting She told David that Nabal was worthless. (laughs) Careful, ladies. She also said that Nabal is his name, and folly essentially is his game. He's a fool. He denied David, who was anointed to be king over the land. And Abigail went back and she reported these things to Nabal, and the Scripture says that his heart died within him. He was turned to stone, and ten days later, God killed him. Now, David writes in Psalm 14 here that all Nabals say to themselves, There is no God. Who is God, and what do I owe him? Remember when Moses was dispatched by God to go to Pharaoh? What was the message that he carried? God said, Yahweh says, let my people go that they may worship me. You remember what Pharaoh said? Who is Yahweh? Who is Yahweh? They say to themselves, they're talking to themselves, the fool is. Now, most of the time when you see or observe someone talking to themselves, we kind of make a little bit of fun of it, don't we? We we make a little fun of the person, a little sport of the person. Are you talking to yourself? But we all talk to ourselves. An article I read in recent days said that 96% of us talk to ourselves. Truth is, that's what we do. And it can be a good thing if we say the right things to ourselves, Right? There have been some preachers through the ages that said we need to stop listening to ourselves and start talking to ourselves. The problem we have is that too many of us listen to ourselves. Genesis 18, the Lord was visiting Abraham. You remember he said, a year from now you're going to have a son. Now Abraham and Sarah were past the age of childbearing. I mean, this was an impossibility. Abraham's nearing 100, Sarah's nearing 90. There's no way they're having a child. Verse 12 of that 18th chapter, this is what it says. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, she was talking to herself, After I am worn out and my Lord Abraham is old, shall I have pleasure? 
You know the story of Jacob and Esau, how there was this uh, rivalry going, and Jacob outfoxed Esau for his birthright and his father's blessing. And after all the dust settled, verse 20, or chapter 27, verse 41, Esau talked to himself and said, After dad dies, the time of mourning is upon us for my dad. It's coming. He's about to die. After my dad dies, I will kill Jacob. Psalm 42. David reports what he was hearing from himself. My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me, my tears are saying to me all the day long, Where is your God? Maybe they should have said, who is your God and where is he? But David preaches to himself. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This is how we are to talk to ourselves. We use God's truth. We rely upon God's promises, not listening to the Whispers of the enemy coming through ourselves and filling our hearts and minds. In Psalm 14, humanity says to themselves, there is no God. And he says they are fools. They have no fear of God, and therefore they have no wisdom. They never think of God as being involved in this world. They never consider that's a possibility. He just doesn't exist. He says they are corrupt. They are perverse. They, can do, they do not factor God or godliness into life's equation. Corrupt here is a strong word. It means ruin or devastation. They are ruined or devastated. It's the same word that, that the writer uses in Genesis 6 to describe humanity prior to the flood. It's the same word that's used in Genesis 13 to describe humanity inhabiting Sodom and Gomorrah. Corrupt, devastated, ruined. They do abominable deeds. That is, they do deeds that are incompatible, incompatible with God. Things that are dangerous, grotesque, out of place, repulsive. Everything about them opposes God's purpose design, and order. There's no one doing good. No one. No one is doing good in spite of what they may hear themselves saying. This is God's evaluation of people that dismiss and deny Him. Surely, you would say, but atheists and unbelievers, surely some of them do good, right? God says no. Isaiah 64, 6, he says, All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment before God. No one's doing good. The heart of the doctrine of total depravity is unpacked here before us. No one is capable of doing good. The Lord looks down. He leans into the situation and to see what's going on. He says, Does anyone understand? Is anyone interested in obeying me? Well, how can you if you're denying that He exists? Does anyone seek after me, He says. 
Is there anyone with genuine wisdom and prudence? Is there anyone that recognizes the sovereignty of God? Is anyone attempting to live according to divine providence? These are all describing someone who is antithetical to the, to the fool. And God says no. He's looking for evidence of wisdom among fools and there is none. All mankind has turned away from God. Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Romans 3, 10 through 12 says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless fools. No one does good, not even one. This made me think. Should we think about what is righteousness? What is righteousness? What does it mean? God's righteousness means that He always acts in accordance with what is right. And He Himself is the final standard of what is right. Being righteous means being perfectly conformed to God's moral character as the final standard of what is right. And he announces that no one's doing that. No one is able to do that. Why are there none righteous? Romans 5.12 answers the question. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. We follow our own devices, not those Patterned after God. The entire human tree is diseased. Every limb, every twig, every branch, because Adam fell, we all fell with him. And we're enslaved to sin. This means that human beings are born with an unrighteous nature. That is incapable of righteousness on its own. Humans cannot conform to God's moral character. We are rebels. In fact, our world applauds, glorifies rebellious attitudes and actions. Does it not? You see someone who's trying to maybe emulate morality, righteous standards, seeking after God. They're made fun of. They're ridiculed. They're mocked. Jesus came to begin a new race of righteous people. He did what Adam failed to do, perfectly obeying the Father. Went to the cross to die for the sins of His people, His chosen people. He died to satisfy God's perfect justice. He resurrected to demonstrate God's validation of His work as being sufficient to atone for sin. All who repent of their sin and believe in Christ's finished work are forgiven and grafted into a new righteous tree. This is the only way to God, through union with Christ. There is no other way. Jesus said, if anyone tries to get up another way, he is a thief and a robber. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father, gets to the Father, but in me. If you're thinking that you've got a loophole, you'd be wrong. Dead wrong. Tragically wrong. 
And so many are. So many around us are. If I've heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times. People who live for themselves, and yet when death comes calling, they just assume they're going to go to the other side and be with God in a better place. They are fools. And if we agree with them, we're being fools with them. How often do you find yourself nodding your head and going, Yeah, I know, I know. Oh, my friends, this is a serious matter. William Plumer said, What a man says in his heart shows whether he is a wise man or a fool, a saint or a sinner. Listen carefully to what they say. Watch carefully what they do. Their fruits bear witness of the nature that resides within them. Jesus said it's what comes out of the mouth that defiles a man, not what goes in. Because what comes out exposes the condition of the heart. It exposes what's in the heart. You spend 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 years in this world living to gratify yourself, to do that which pleases you with no regard for God and think He's going to have regard for you in His eternity? How foolish, how foolish is such thinking. And you would say so to anyone in a practical matter in this world who would think in these kind of terms. And yet when it comes to spiritual things, it's all okay. Well, secondly, David says these fools face severe consequences. They are workers of iniquity, persecuting the righteous. In Christ, we are righteous before God, yet we live in an unrighteous world. How do we do that? How can we thrive? God expresses astonishment here regarding these fools in verse 4. Have they no knowledge? Don't they know? Are they ignorant? Of course, it's a question he knows the answer to, right? He's just using an effective teaching method. Absolutely, they have no knowledge. I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. I want to show you something. This is not unfamiliar to you. Romans chapter 1 verse 18. Listen and observe what the Lord says here. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. No one can say God has not shown us Himself. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts, their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools." and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up 
in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. How wearisome is it to continue to listen to a Christian community give justification to those who choose rebellion against God and act on it? When will we learn? God means what He says and says what He means. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. A blatant rejection, denial, dismissal of God. No one sees themselves in Romans 1, do they? Do you see yourself there? I'm not in there, Pastor. Believe me, I'm not there. No one wants to see themselves in Romans 1. Everyone thinks they're basically good. Good enough. No, I'm not perfect, but I'm good enough. What does that even mean? How much would you have to sin to be deserving of damnation? Always a little bit more than I'm doing. That person, that person, that person... Yeah, I could see where God could be really angry with them. It's amazingly easy to see how we deceive ourselves. Romans 1. These people believe that life is found in living on your own terms. In Romans 2, there are people there described who believe that life is found in keeping God's rules, being legalists. In Romans 3, we are shown that there's no life and no hope apart from Christ. No life and no hope. The fools persecute and devour God's people. How's this done in our world today? How are they devouring God's people today? The world despises morality, righteousness, the gospel. It has no problem using these things as props to make a profit. The comedians, the entertainment industry, they'll use morality and righteousness as a prop in order to profit from it. But they don't want it. They mock God and His people. And yet, they will ask for prayer when there's problems they face the world insists that we must all be tolerant but there's no tolerant for those who seek after God they do not call on the name of the Lord 
They do not call on the name of the Lord. That doesn't even satisfy them. They don't want anyone else to call on His name either. You remember when the Babylonians came in and took the best and brightest of Israel and took them into captivity? Babylonians were a pagan people, idolatrous people. And they were okay to start with, with a little flavor of godliness, to benefit from those who, who confessed to follow Christ or to follow God. But it wasn't long till that wasn't enough. They weren't content just to profit off the backs of their captivity. They soon outlawed their practice of religion, their worship of God. And they demanded that they worship on their terms. Bow down to our God, or we'll kill you. The world's never content. It's never enough. The foolish, the foolish will not call upon the Lord, and they don't want anyone else to either. They will be judged by Yahweh. He's a righteous judge, and justice is certain. They're in a horrifying position. God will never abandon His righteous ones. They will discover how foolish they've been, these unrighteous ones. But it will happen much too late for it to matter. Every time I hear it reported that someone has died, I can't help it. I immediately start thinking, what have they encountered? Have they been welcomed into the presence of God because they're in Christ? Or have they found out much too late that they were putting their hope in something that was flawed and broken and self-oriented and rejected by God? They may have been popular, they may have been prosperous, they may have been kings in this world, but in the next world, judged by the Creator, is a terribly losing proposition. God has delivered His people at various times throughout history. Remember, we talk a lot about Moses and the children of Israel bringing them out of Egyptian bondage. He also used Esther to preserve his people. He used Cyrus, a foreign leader, king, to release his people from bondage. But God doesn't always work that way. He says, I am my people's refuge. Even if I don't deliver them now, deliverance will come. Deliverance will come. This language here has an eschatological tone to it. The persecution and mockery of God's people steadily increases. It's not improving, it's increasing. Paul in his last letter to Timothy is exactly right. We see it unfolding around us. They would put to shame the plans of the afflicted, David writes, but they will discover Yahweh is their refuge. It seems, it appears, that they're winning. It seems and appears that they are progressing and that they are having their way. But God says, 
in me, my people are safe and secure. No matter what it looks like at this time, no matter what happens in this world, God's people will know His protection. Multitudes of martyrs have marched into eternity, believing and trusting in that. And the Scripture indicates that they have experienced that. There is healing and saving that is physical and temporary, but ultimately there is perfect healing and saving beyond this present world. Now I want you to see, finally in verse 7, the righteous look and long for Zion's salvation. The righteous look and long for Zion's salvation. This is the place, Zion is the place where God dwells. This is the place where God is. The psalmist believed God dwells among His people even now. David must have thought about the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, where Moses met with God on behalf of the people. And there in the camp where the tabernacle was set among God's people. Or maybe he's thinking about the temple that was already in his heart to build for God, the dwelling place for God, where God's presence would be among His people. Revelation says one day there will be no temple because God will dwell perfectly among His people forever. Fools will be judged and condemned to an eternity outside God's presence in a place called hell. The righteous will be forever with the Lord. A new heaven, a new earth, a new creation. All things made new again. The impact of this psalm is powerful and it is stunning. There's none righteous, not even one. The whole human race is corrupt, ruined. Humanity has denied and tried to dismiss God. He doesn't exist. That's comforting for those who are living in rebellion. Humanity prefers to live in defiance of God's righteousness. It's foolish to pervert life and be abominable before God. The world is antagonistic to God and His righteous people. In Christ, the righteous can endure and thrive. How? 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 We all want to know, right? That's the question we live with each and every day. How can I thrive in this world that has turned its back completely on God? By knowing judgment is coming. God is true. God is faithful. God is steadfast. God is just. And justice is coming. It should both encourage our hearts and it should grieve our hearts for those who stand in the crosshairs of God's coming judgment. Judgment's coming and the full bloom of salvation is coming. In all of its glory and splendor, it's coming. Judgment and glorification. The righteous live in a godless, corrupt world now, but godless world It may want to destroy us, but there's coming a day of reckoning. God will judge the wicked and deliver His people. This hope should inspire us to live faithfully. To live faithfully even in a faithless world. 
Hebrews 12, 2 says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the Father of God. He's on the throne now, but He's not going to remain there forever. The Scripture says He's going to get up off that throne and that He's coming back. He's coming back for His people. Not for those who've dismissed Him and tried to ignore Him. He's coming for those who have believed on Him and trusted in Him. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with Him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always, and so we will always, and so we will always be with the Lord. Does that get you through? Does that enable you to persist, to endure, to persevere? Friends, don't be fools. Trust and obey in God. There is no other way. Father, we're thankful and grateful for who you are. What a glorious psalm. What an incredible song David has written for us, Lord, to point out the great contrast between those who trust in you, believe in you, and those, Lord, who turn their hearts and their minds away from you, who attempt to dismiss you, Lord, whether we do it by our lips or whether we do it by the way we live our lives. Or there are people here this morning who do not know you as Savior. They're still living in their sin. They're still trusting in their effort. I pray that today you would confront the error that is plaguing their hearts, that keeps them in darkness, and that your Spirit would bring renewal and restoration and regeneration. Graft them into your righteous tree. Lord, enable them to believe on you and trust in you. May today be the day of salvation. And Lord, for those of us who profess to know you as Savior, God, I pray that you would examine our lives and ensure that we are not confessing you with the mouth, but living as practical atheists. That we would be living faithfully, thriving, even in this world of sin and devastation, for your glory, for your honor, until you return for us. And we give you thanks and praise for who you are. And we make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, let's stand as we respond to the